Hi, and welcome to Grant Thorne's Risk and Regulation Unraveled podcast, our monthly roundup of regulatory developments. My name is David Murray, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ben Farmer. Say hello, Ben. Hello. Um, we are back from our holiday break, actually. Uh, so we, we did take August off. So uh, my uh, reference to being a monthly podcast was clearly misinformation. But uh, uh, we are now back for the, for the grind between now and Christmas, where we will be producing our updates once more on a monthly basis. Um, so, Ben, did you have a good summer holiday? Uh, not yet. Oh, I was I was confused. You you it was holidays. Like, I don't remember getting away, but clearly, clearly, I need to figure out who I need to speak to to get that approved. Uh, well, it, could it possibly be because uh, the small matter of the consumer duty going live in the middle of the summer may have uh, may have jeopardised well, a few holiday may, plans? May, there may have been an element of that for a few people, I suspect. Uh, which is which is an incredibly professional segue on our part, I think, to the first uh, first topic we were going to cover, which is the consumer duty. Life is the 31st of July, um, and uh, we are seeing quite a bit of supervisory activity. I think it's fair to say we're going to try and summarise some of that in a moment. Uh, I think there's a there's an, a, a debate to be had about how much of the activity might have taken place anyway, even without consumer duty being in place. But it's fair to say that the FCA are are choosing uh, to position a good deal of what it's doing currently under the banner of consumer duty. And with that in mind, Ben, I was going to ask you, you you've been taking a look at some of the thematic work they've been doing on the banking and lending sector? Yes. Yeah. So the FCA seizing on the new for this sector rules around the requirement to perform fair value assessments. So in what is the first thing it's sort of publicly badged as a consumer duty intervention, uh, the FCA has asked nine banks and building societies to provide it with copies of their fair value assessments for their savings products. Uh, the FCA stating that it's going to analyse the information provided and give a further update on this in the autumn, including details of any concerns identified and associated steps. Mm. In terms of what you said, David, around this is possibly relates to some things that were pre-existing anyway. Obviously, this is all closely tied into cost of living concerns around making sure people get value from whatever savings they've got tied up. Uh, in the same update, the FCA has also said it will give a separate update on its 14-point action plan unveiled back in July to ensure a competitive savings market. Uh, FCA notes there have been positive developments since that was announced. As of right now, I think we're still waiting for that update to come through. Yeah. Uh, just a reminder of point one from that 14-point plan that sort of illustrates the sorts of things they're focusing on here. So point one is require firms offering the lowest rates to provide their fair value assessments under the consumer duty by 31st of August 2023 and take robust action by the end of the year against those who cannot demonstrate fair value. So all, okay. all of this kind of all ties up together. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so so it's uh, yes. Not passing on increases in interest rates to your savers is yeah. obviously being wrapped into a, you know the, the fair value assessment expectations. Um, uh, it's interesting, of course. Uh, uh, that thematic work has been going on. We've 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 seen um, a number of skilled person reviews as well going out into the lending sector on a slightly different angle, but equally cost of living, consumer duty related. It's uh, they're they're focused on borrowers in distress, so the treatment of borrowers in arrears. Um, so so yeah, supervisory activity both both at the sort of products and services end and also at the uh, the uh, the uh, the customer um uh, the customer service end of the consumer duty here um interesting uh, what about other sectors are we uh yeah i think similar 
similar themes, really. Um, yeah, fair value is definitely where they have started their consumer duty work, which I guess, given a combination of cost of living and in a number of these sectors, some pre-existing rules that the FCA can build on, means that's hardly a surprise. Um, obviously, we've already seen this request be publicised in the banking sector. Uh, I think we can safely assume other sectors are going to get very similar requests if they haven't already. I, I think in some sectors we, yes. we are already seeing yes. Section 165 requests go out. A um, little bit of specific work in the GI sector as well. We're aware there are a couple of past business reviews being required at the moment. Uh, some associated voluntary requirements being imposed and in some cases publicised with uh, particular focuses on things like GI pricing reform compliance, which Okay, that's built on sort of technical rules that predate the consumer duty, but that's very much price and value this, adjacent. This, yeah, this is this is the um, this is the renewal pricing, is it? So basically, yeah. not yeah, offering price, your price new customers year, up yeah. year on year, which was was specifically banned. Suggestion yeah. that some market participants might not have stopped doing that quite as fully yeah. as they were meant to. Um, Oops. And some some similar focuses on claims settlement valuations from the regulator as well, particularly the way things like. Uh, Motor total loss payments, so the way that when an insurer writes off your car, they figure out what it's worth. Some some fairly heavy scrutiny from the regulator in that area at present as well. Mm, yeah, value. Um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, so the asset management sector, which I'm obviously pretty close to, uh, it's also value focused it, 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 slightly differently in the, in the sense. Well, maybe not actually, because you mentioned that there are legacy rules in a lot of these a lot of these uh, circumstances, like the GI pricing uh, area, where consumer duty is overlaid on it but the rules were the rules beforehand and and um and in the retail funds space we've had assessment of value requirements if you like that's fair value assessment on steroids um much more prescriptive than the consumer duty rules but we've had these requirements that requirement for several years now three four years and um the fca have done a couple of rounds of thematic visits reviewing how firms have, have um have, have conducted those assessments and um i mean it's, it's just interesting i think i think i think there are and I've said this for some time, I, I think because that's a more mature framework, it's been around for longer than the consumer duty. I, I think it's a potential to read across how the FCA will evolve its supervision of other sectors from a value uh, perspective. So some of the feedback in this in the second thematic on assessment of values for, for funds were um, they, they criticised some organisations for having methodologies that made it um, there were multiple paths, if I can put it that way, by which by which a fund could be green rated, if, if you like, in a, in, a, in a value sense, green rated. So it's relatively easy if you, if you knock any one of these ones, any any of these uh, any of these uh, routes down, you get to be green. Uh, but the corollary is is that actually the methodology has made it quite difficult from a data point of view, objectively stepping through the, the tests to, to to be red rated. So if uh, they talked about asymmetric methodologies so very easy to be green very hard to be to be red um and you know they pointed out that that made made it possible for you know funds that were objectively poor performers you know and underperformed their benchmark for years and years on end to be still to be green rated um uh, because these methodologies have kind of created this this convoluted path um and and to 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 achieving that conclusion which so they felt that was that was on um that was uh not the way it should be done um the criticize a quality you have the quality of service which is which is um clearly relevant to the consumer duty you know they, they criticize firms for not getting enough mi not doing an objective enough uh analysis in that space so relying on 
we don't get many complaints. We uh, um, sort of, sort of we we do some you know soft customer satisfaction work, and everyone seems happy. So 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 not not particularly rigorous methodologies to assess whether or not actually um, a good quality service is actually being delivered. So there's obvious obvious uh, read across I think for firms when they're thinking about what what MI do we need to demonstrate a good outcome from a from a customer service point of view. Um, but I thought in some ways that the most interesting area is um, they, well, my words rather than theirs, but it, but it, it, the, the thematic feedback reads, reads like um, that they were a bit concerned that the assessments, the value assessments were essentially something that management did and then presented to the boards and the boards at a fairly high level signed them off. And, and and they wanted more from the boards. They wanted the boards to be much more challenging, closer, closer to the underlying detail, closer to the methodologies in order to be able to ask sensible questions. And they did give examples where, you know, they they, they are, they, they found the boards were, uh, you know, just uh, didn't have, uh, we're not able to explain what, <laughs> what the underlying methodologies were. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that's, that for me was, was, was quite an interesting dimension where, where does this cease being management's responsibility and, and become something that the boards need to in order to cover their own responsibilities to be to be quite actively involved in some of the detail? Because um, I think the FCA might be expecting them to be pretty, pretty close to it. Katimi Duty champions out there, you might be listening to this. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that, that, that was uh, interesting, I thought. Um, uh, Katimi Duty got mentioned a few other times, though, didn't they? I've also got a list of there was a the loan fee fraud was uh was wrapped up under the consumer duty was it not the fca's yeah. press release there yeah so the fca's put its press release out to uh start its campaign against yes loan fee fraud this is where a consumer pays a fee for a loan that they never receive which apparently typically results in a loss of around 260 pounds uh it's a type of fraud that's been growing year on year and as usual as as the cost of living bites as uh interest rates rise and affordable loans get harder to find uh, people are probably finding themselves more susceptible to the things that look too good to be true and more willing to take a risk on them. Uh, FCA's data shows that last summer there was a 26% increase in complaints from consumers who had fallen victim to loan fee fraud compared to 2021. Uh, this year, rising cost of living coupled with summer spending plans and pressures could increase the risk. So the FCA's given some guidance on how to not let scammers enjoy your summer. Uh, offered a three-step check to protect yourself. So if you're cold, cold called or emailed, it could be a scam. If you're asked to pay an upfront free, upfront fee, it could be a scam. Or if you're asked to pay quickly or unusually, it could be a scam. And they then give their usual advice about anyone you're thinking of taking a loan from. Look them up on the FCA register to make sure they are actually authorised. Mm. Yes, that's interesting. We'll touch upon a, a court case later. Actually, um, is that that press release that work there and, and the court case we can refer to later so it's just a reminder that the fca you know besides supervising authorized firms it also occasionally has to go after unauthorized firms <laughs> the unauthorized people aren't regulated at all in order to try and get them to stop doing what they're doing um and and that's an example of that um there was uh i guess under the consumer duty uh discussion topic uh the fca put out a web page very specific in a way, uh, um, well, like all of these things, actually, they, they are specific, but there was also a read across to, 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 to wider, uh, to, to other sectors. So this was assessing vulnerability for pension transfers. 
um, and anyone who's been following the IFA marketplace knows that pension transfers and British Steel pension scheme, pension transfers and things have been a complete uh, disaster area uh, for a lot of for a lot of firms and a lot of pension scheme members, unfortunately. Um, anyway, the, the 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 it's just a web page, but it sets out good and bad practices. Um, I guess nothing revolutionary, but it it it. it um, yeah, it, 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 it conveys again in quite pithy fashion, so it might be worth a, it's a quick read. It might be worth a look. Um, but um, you know, you, you should be doing as an organisation a vulnerability risk assessment in the sense of what what is likely to be the vulnerability type of vulnerabilities that are relevant to you, your business model, and the kind of work you do with clients. Um, but beyond that. And sorry, and then obviously train your people and have processes, et cetera, that 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 are aligned with that risk assessment. But beyond that, it's it's about being very personalized. Um, and and they were kind of pointing out good behaviors, such as organizations that had set questions in place that that they asked, you know, that were intended to 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 throw up uh, uh, um, answers that would identify help identify or confirm vulnerability. Uh, and equally, they criticise those which are sort of like blank, blanket policies. You know, we'll we'll assume that in one case, you know, anyone over 55 is vulnerable. So, you know, I guess that that means a lot of people are going to be treated as vulnerable. But but actually, that's that's not the way vulnerable rules are intended to operate. They are about identifying specific vulnerability rather than just sort of generalising everyone into a vulnerability bucket where they don't get any special treatment. So I thought, uh, OK, a quick, that was a quick read. Um, so uh, yeah, I, uh, we are seeing. I, I referenced to some of the borrowers in financial difficulty work, but there, there are there are there's, there's clearly a pattern of skilled person work that has been linked to the consumer duty. We, uh, we we obviously do a lot of skilled person work as a firm, and we, we've seen a rush of requirement notices for um, uh, for, for uh, you know. Uh, work that, that that amounts to examining whether customer detriment has occurred and looking at it through a uh, consumer duty lens, including the product governance aspects of the consumer duty. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, the FCA are clearly very, very active um, in, in trying to make the uh, the consumer duty feel like it's uh, it's a real thing, making waves. Um, Talking about making waves, I suppose we we had a bit of entertainment over the summer holiday with the um the uh, the the I guess I'll mention his name just to so everyone knows we're on the same page. The Nigel Farage and Coots story, debanking story. We are not going to replay it all here partly because we um we might be going for a few hours. Um and it's uh, to say that it's uh it's generated some some waves though is is would be an understatement. And the when the FCA have you've been looking at this Ben there so they've kicked out information requests and yeah so the had a, a couple of responses to this one we'll maybe come back to in a moment is a review of the way in which firms handle politically exposed persons more generally i believe that was sort of pre-planned and was always going to happen at some point this year even before all of this latest kerfuffle erupted um, and then the one that appears slightly more reactive to this is an information request sent to a number of banks and building societies. Uh, the FCA asking for information on the number of customers that have been terminated or debanked, uh, the number of customers who have had their accounts suspended, the number of customers denied services, the reasons for all of the above, and the number of complaints banks have received on this issue. And this is specifically included asking if accounts have been closed due to expressions of political or other opinions. 
so this has been requested from what the FCA refers to as the largest banks and building societies, and they're asking about both personal and business customers, including pawnbrokers, charities, and political parties. Mm. Uh, the FCA is committed to providing an initial assessment by mid-September. It's also committed to sharing its analysis with the Chancellor, which I suspect increases the odds quite dramatically of anything actually happening off the back of this, because obviously, yes. in addition to the regulator's own initiative and the public opinion element, you've now got political meddling to factor into this as well. Political meddling, um, that's that's what the issue was in the first place, wasn't it? Banks, political uh, meddling. This is now political meddling by politicians <laughs> rather than political meddling by firms. So this is uh, like, Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Oh, no, everyone likes a bit of political meddling now. Um, well, uh, you, well, you mentioned uh, mid-September for that. So we are recording this in mid-September and, and probably, it'll probably be a few days before people get to listen to this podcast. But as we speak, the FT is breaking news that um, the FCA are going to produce a, a report based on that data analysis you mentioned there, the data request saying, uh, well, how are they phrasing it? There, there's, there was no, there's no clear evidence or there's no evidence of? Uh, yes, so the FCA has declined to comment on this. Um, <laughs> however, the, F, the FT, I believe, is reporting that the FCA's review has found that from, I think it's about 34 banks and building societies yeah. that responded, uh, they've all reported that there were zero account closures due to uh, political right. opinions what what i don't know at this stage it'll be interesting to see whether whatever the fca publishes sheds any more light is to what extent the fca has probed yes. whether there's evidence that political it, opinions have played a right. role and it's just not been given as the reason it, it, it this it does strike me that that they've given all these banks two weeks to report this data and the banks have come back and said uh we haven't debanked anybody presumably nigel farge is isn't was not debanked for that reason based on based on their this result so um um, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine there'd be, there was too much um, too much investigation of that. But but, but yes, it's uh, it's it, it suggests the banks certainly are, are not holding their hands up and uh, and and suggesting this is a, a regular occurrence. Um, you're right. Uh, you know, politics is obviously going to play a role in 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 where this goes to. Uh, I'm I'm aware it's, it's obviously widely reported that uh, quite a few banks are being subject to huge numbers of subject access requests. So this is obviously the mechanism that Nigel Farage used to get a hold of Coote's internal reputational risk committee uh, papers. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know whether all of those SARS that people are putting in are gonna, is going to is going to produce much of anything. We, we, we will see. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah some uh, frantic and widespread and potentially at quite senior level refresher training going on about the principle of don't put anything in writing that if yeah, the customer requests it is going to embarrass you. Not the principle. <laughs> <laughs> but they wanted that. That's not our professional advice. Uh, but, but yeah, but yes, yes. Well, no, the, uh, the advice is don't say it, and then it can't get written down. Don't even yeah. think it. it it's um, we'll, you know, we'll 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 see how it runs. I mean, I think the uh, the, the the PEP review you mentioned uh, as as to as to whether or not uh, you know that that should be a, 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 as high a bar as it as it currently is for anyone that's classified as a PEP, or whether we can make distinctions potentially uh, in that population. I think I think that's that's potentially going to be useful um uh yeah i mean i, I think this is not the place to, to for the discussion really but i just i guess i, I look at that, all of this and i think reputational risk management it's hard i mean <laughs> you know this uh, a number of people lost their jobs because they attempted to manage risk uh reputational risk and and 
seem to have achieved almost the complete opposite of of, of the uh, intended objective. But um, I just think it's a it, it's it's a hard thing to get right. Clearly, particularly when you're dealing with high it's, profile people, which is maybe a good reason for not having any high profile clients. I don't know. Um, no, it's, it's challenging, isn't it, when the the customer's got basically unfettered freedom of speech and clearly as a as a firm trying to respond to this, there's very little you can say without breaching confidentiality, which then is a yes. large issue in its own right. Yes. Well, you, you could you could you could then therefore not breach client confidentiality. Well, that would be yeah. that would be a good start. Yeah, maybe don't have senior executives go for dinner with journalists and uh, start talking. But anyway, as you say, not the place necessarily for the deep dive on that. No, no, no. Well, people will be writing books on this for years to come. Um, okay. Uh, well, we we, we we probably will get the opportunity to talk about that when the FCA actually do produce the results and 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 we learn what if any um, further steps are going to take place. Um, uh, we have uh, got well, the terms of reference for the politically exposed persons review now as well. Oh yes. Um, and these, to be fair, you can sort of see that these are on a slightly different track because they do place the focus in a slightly different place. Uh, this is much more focusing on the frameworks that are in place for how firms define politically exposed person, mm -hmm. what level mm -hmm. of consumer of customer due diligence and enhanced due diligence they yeah. perform on them. Yeah. So this is much more the due diligence end rather than the debanking people end. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. It does make a point of obviously highlighting that a lot of these definitions are put in sort of international law and international obligations. So I don't necessarily expect two big changes there from a look of the areas the FCA singles out to focus on looks like they're much more focused on the proportionality element of the way banks are yeah. applying consumer due diligence, customer due diligence, rather than the robustness angle. So understandable given the current wider sort of commentary and where the concerns seem to be. But yeah. I do just wonder, there's always a risk with these things, aren't there? If you start with, let's make everything proportionate, are we going to be coming back here in three, four years time going, let's make everything more robust again? Well, well that, that's right. No, that's right. That's right. And interesting, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the other things that we're going to, Cover off the um, there are obviously international standards at play here, and and I suspect you know we, we can't probably diverge too far from sort of internationally recognized application of PEP requirements. Um, so one of the things that happened, something in the last few weeks, first of September, I think it went live, was the um, uh, the joint money laundering steering group and, and the FCA, obviously, in relation to regulated firms, um, it extended uh, requirements to uh, for, for certain of well. New rules that have been developed internationally, the, um, the in relation to crypto transfers um, to any UK-based crypto provider. So this is this is the travel rule. So this is stuff that you know has been in the banking and the payment sector for a while. It basically says that if if you uh, if you're making a payment transfer, uh, in this case out of the UK to somewhere else, you need to send uh, you need you need to tra traveling with the payment needs to be enough information on the underlying client in order for the recipient to you know fulfill its responsibilities in relation to money laundering so so uh that rule hasn't applied standards haven't applied to crypto providers but it now does um and in fact the GA, the money laundering steering group guidance has got an entire new annex you're detailing how the controls uh, uh should should work in, in relation to it so so but it's very clear you know if you read the fco commentary on it that this is the international standard, so we were just applying the international standard. So I think the same will probably apply to limit limit the scope of the PEP review. Um, uh, well, another, I was going to say the other crypto development, not really development, just direction of travel, is um, 
more work. I think the, the pace of work seems to be picking up in, in terms of the um, the uh, the digital pound, Bitcoin, or whatever we're going to call it. So we we still are in the consult consultation period for um, digital pound, um, uh, but in the meantime, the Bank of England have mobilised like a technology working group, isn't it? Uh, an advisory group, academic advisory group. That's it. So, so to 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 sort of accelerate the details of of this over the next couple of years, um, and and that seems to have sparked a bit more discussion through a Treasury Select Committee, and I guess more in the, in the press as well around the secrecy implications of the uh, the of of of, of, of crypto, whether you know, particularly if cash continues to disappear from the, the high street. Uh, the privacy aspects of of, of using a, a, a national digital currency, um, and the deputy governor of the Bank of England has talked about needing a national conversation on uh, on on uh, on whether or not. Well, yeah. I guess it's not. All... It's not one of the big appeals of cryptocurrency amongst the people who are fans of it. Meant to be the fact that it's free from central bank meddling. Hundred percent, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I struggle to imagine this one taking off. Then, really, if I'm honest, but. Um... Yeah, no, well, no, you know, as a staunch libertarian myself and, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the uh, opponent of fiat currency um, that I am. Uh, no, I, 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 no, I exaggerate, obviously, slightly. But but yeah, um, yeah, well, yes, I, I think I think the um, I think uh, just like pound notes and indeed, you know, sterling denominated bank accounts, I think the implication would be that if this comes along, then. We, we kind of don't have a choice but to use it so yeah. so i'm not sure it's going, particularly going to be a voluntary um, exercise but um but anyway uh just just a marker that 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 that, that is uh the pro work is definitely being focused on uh developing the sort of the, the technical standards and, and other standards that could make that a reality over the next few years presumably while we have this national conversation about privacy um uh, what have we got in the other news section here? Uh, ooh, well, I guess so. Um, I'll, I'll kick off. Um, the FCA and the Treasury um, have kicked off a review of the investment advice guidance boundary. So, first of all, it's, it's worth noting, and a couple of things we're going to cover fall into the same bucket. This is one of the Edinburgh reforms. Um, do you remember those? I think they ring a bell. Yeah, they do. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, uh, they don't get mentioned uh, as much as they did potentially, but uh, they, ma they made a few headlines at the times at the time. Uh, yeah, so this is one of the Edinburgh reforms. So this is uh, the, the sense that um, the cost of dedicated financial advice is pretty high, arguably because, well, partly because of the regulatory burden, uh, partly just because the cost of delivering, uh, you know, personalised advice is, is 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 quite expensive, and that means there's a lot of people with a bit of savings. You can't really afford advice, and the, and the concern over the advice gap, as it were, that, that people are not uh, uh, people should be getting some help and are not getting that are not getting that help. So the advice guidance boundary is about uh, uh, looking at whether what constitutes regulated advice is defined in the right way, or whether there are it's too it, it captures too much, um, uh, and whether if it's if that if the, the boundaries change somewhat then simplified or, or more generic suggestions help uh, I'm, I'm trying to use other, any word other than advice um you know could be could be provided at a much lower cost because it's 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 not subject to the same regulatory standards um uh and, and that's you know that's that's what this exercise is going is going to look at 
Um, there was a, you know, F FCA got partway down consulting on rules for something called um, uh, uh, simplified investment advice. Um, and they've canned that and, and sort of wrapped it into the uh, this the, this advice guidance boundary um, assessment. Um, it, it, I'll be, I mean, clearly I, I do a lot of work in that space. I'll be very interested to see, to see where it lands up and whether or not it actually delivers the kind of results. If it does happen, does it deliver the kind of results that people are looking for? My, my, my concern is, just because it feels like I've maybe been, been down this road before, is that it, it, it would undoubtedly be an example of deregulating. So allowing more to happen outside of, if you like, the, the most tightly regulated boundary. Um, and uh, that's almost certainly going to lead to some kind of market failures or harms. So are we are we going to be um, you know back here in a few years time sort of tightening the <laughs> tightening the rules again uh, because the, actually the appetite for for bad things to happen is is, is very low. So yeah, it, it, would, it would definitely be deregulation. It would definitely be a I guess if you're a regulator a higher risk approach, um, uh, and uh, um, that could have some. Um, negative consequences, which I think it would need to be part of the decision on whether to proceed or not, actually, the, uh, the acceptance that some things might go wrong. Um, uh, well, so, so yeah, well, I guess loosely under the Edinburgh reforms, because there were things that were, were covered. I know there's a there's this gen general approach to onshoring EU regulation, EU directives yeah. in, 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 and bringing them into the, the handbook where I guess they can be, you know, manipulated <laughs> more easily in future. So you, you've got one you've been looking at, haven't you, Ben, on, on the Insurance Distribution Directive? Uh, yes. Uh, so this is consultation paper 2319, the future regulatory framework for the IBD. Uh, includes a bit of a rebrand. It appears the future regulatory framework uh, is now going to be called the... Uh, oh, I've lost it. Smarter, smarter. Smarter regulatory framework. Yes, I didn't get that smarter, memo. There we go. Yes, I, I missed that memo, obviously, but it's a, it's a smarter regulatory framework. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, consider yourself corrected. Well, thank you. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, they're still titled the uh, the CP Future Regulatory Framework, and they just buried the reference to Smarter somewhere in the small print. But uh, okay. anyway, we'll we'll gradually get used to calling that in time. But uh, in terms of actual changes, um, none basically. So the IDD delegated legislation that all got onshored on on the day of Brexit is now all being moved, as you say, David, into the FCA handbook. So it brings it. Uh, more under the FCA's direct control, but they do specifically say we're not intending to introduce any new requirements on firms as part of these proposals, nor are we intending to remove any existing requirements. We consider this approach the most appropriate way to maintain consumer protection and regulatory standards. So there's the usual token words about oh, we'll keep an eye on it, we'll consider the need for changes in the right. future, but uh, nothing, nothing actually changing at the moment. This is just background legislative yeah. stuff to make sure the rules can stay the rules. Yeah, I guess it just, yeah, okay. So it does. Sound, I mean, you're, you're right. Once once it's a, hand, it's a handbook rule, they can change it much more quickly than by a statute. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't sound like there's any appetite to do that at this point. No, um, certainly no no desire for a load of deregulation in the insurance distribution space just at the minute. Uh, it's nothing to jump up and down about excited wise, but there was something similar. Consultation paper twenty three seventeen, which is securitization vehicles, or, or more specifically on on firms that participate in the securitization market, um, which is obviously a bit more niche than insurance distribution. Um, 
it's a slightly different well it's the same in the sense it's 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 bringing um onshore regulations into 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 the handbook but it is actually trying to introduce one or two changes as well um in it, yeah actually it's, it's an interesting cp i think it's the first one i've seen um which actually has a section talking to the secondary objective the regulators now have to promote international competitiveness and growth uh, so there's actually a section in the, in the, in, the, in the report which talks to how this is intended to to meet that objective uh, and to be fair you know it's one area where that, that's very relevant you know can, the the, argument, the 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 paper talks to um it would make it easier for uk firms generally but financial services firms also to securitize up their assets and sell them on then that raises finance for them to do other things and to 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 to, to drive growth would be the is is, is basically the theory um um, and and there are one or two tweaks that could could make it easier. Might be the wrong word, but more more appealing to securitize things. Uh, I think the biggest change for anyone that's interested is, um, a, 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 say, a lender or somebody that securitizes their assets and sells them on under current rules has to retain a five percent stake in that. So kind of this skin in the game type thing. You can't securitize it 100 percent of what you've 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 lent. Say in that example. Um, you have to retain five percent of it, and, and the the new approach, a lot of detail to be worked out, is apparently going to make that a more risk based. So rather than a flat number, it's going to be a more risk based um, approach, and that might mean you know, for low risk assets, actually, it's a it's a lower percentage that you have to retain, which might make you know securitisation a bit more attractive. Therefore, you could probably raise more money. So yeah, t- tweaks I guess around, around around the edges, but 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 but, but some some changes, and it'll be interesting as other things are are brought into the handbook, whether it follows the IDD route you described, which is no change, or, or whether it follows the securitisation route, which is a bit you know a bit more. Um, it's obviously clearly it's an opportunity for them to consult on to tweak things if they if they minded to. Yeah, I suppose that'll probably vary, won't it? Because I believe at the time there was much thought that when IDD was being discussed at Europe, the FCA were kind of a lead party and were yeah. largely wrote a lot of it. So they you can see why they probably still yeah. lose their baby and don't want to mess around with it. I suspect yeah. there'll be yeah. other sections where we might have been less more of a rule taker than a rule setter and yeah. therefore might be more keen to change it. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, other news. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, a, a, a day doesn't pass by without the FCA getting new powers to do something new in a new sector. But um, they, they seem to. Am I right? They've been given some powers to supervise or try and ensure access to cash. Is that? that, that yes. That yeah. System? This has come off the back of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2023. Uh, so the FCA has been tasked with ensuring reasonable reasonable provision of cash deposit and withdrawal services for personal and business current accounts. Uh, as you said, it's got some new powers to go with that. So the FCA has said it will be developing new rules to support this. So at this stage, we've kind of got an article that says there will be a consultation paper coming, but we don't actually have the consultation yet. Um, a few interesting nuggets in the article um sort of summary of the changes in the market and about levels of access to cash which actually despite all the branch closures that have happened over recent years are still broadly quite good uh the fca reckons 95.1 percent of the uk population still lives within one mile of a free to use cash withdrawal point mm. uh, and by 2021 it reckons that 85 percent of all uk payments did not involve cash uh, that being said, 3.1 million people as of May 2022 did still use cash to pay for all or most things. So there is clearly 
still a need for it. And as I think the FCA said on various occasions, they've sort of got a, an emerging view that there's probably quite a strong link between customers who are most reliant on cash and customers with characteristics of actual or potential vulnerability. So yeah. clearly the uh, the implications of removing that access would, would sting a bit. As I say, we yeah. don't have the CP yet. There's a couple of hints of what might be in there. Um, in particular, for the banks and building societies designated by the government as being subject to the new access to cash regime, uh, the FCA is probably going to have rules that require them to conduct assessments of the reasonableness of cash provision when certain mm -hmm. significant local changes occur or are proposed. So things like the decision to close a branch or the decision mm -hmm. to remove an ATM. Uh, and we expect these rules to also require an assessment where a community requests one. Uh, which is interesting. I think the, the idea of a group of your customers being able to request a review of your decision feels fairly new in financial mm, services. Mm, mm, yeah. Um, and yeah, new rules expected to take effect by summer 2024. And in the meantime, there's a bit of a token effort to sort of say, well, consumer duty is giving some protection in this area. Sort of suggestion of, well, you've got to provide good outcomes. Removing people's access to cash might not be a good outcome, but it didn't sound especially convincing to me, if I'm honest. No, well, there's plenty of data referenced about about the, the weight of closures of branches and mobile ATMs, wasn't it? So yeah, the, the the trend there's quite a strong trend towards fewer opportunities to get a hold of cash. Um, yeah, okay, that is interesting. I'm yeah, and and you know, is I, I kind of rather glibly introduced it, but it is uh, uh, the seemingly never-ending growth in the FCA's responsibilities. Um, uh, there's a uh, I think I've got on my list here around um, uh, um, sort of market facing activity. There's a market study going on. We haven't had a really good market study for a while, actually. And I guess this one, this one is on wholesale market data, which is a bit of a niche thing. It's it's um, it, it, it really covers. Yeah, does, doesn't doesn't cover people trying to get cash out of an ATM. It, it covers, you know, banks and brokers and investment managers, et cetera, uh, um, uh, who are participating in financial markets and the three the three sources of market data it, it refers to and it's covering off in this market study are benchmark providers so um so yeah uh, uh, FTSE 100 is a benchmark but there are thousands of the benchmarks um so benchmark providers because yeah, there's a relatively finite number of firms that actually provide benchmarks um credit reference agencies which is even more concentrated is really like three big credit reference agencies that do all of the credit rating um certainly at the, the top end of the market and market data which is uh you know data from trading markets live feeds etc that every every investment manager or trader you know need, needs to access in order to in order to be able to see, see what's going on in the market um and uh yeah so well the the, re the review's underway I mean, market studies in the past have led to some pretty significant changes in in other sectors so so it's um it, it, whenever i see a market study i think oh this could be interesting and they've introduced, they've published an interim paper, which is, um, well, it provides some analysis. It actually, does a pretty, a really good job of describing how the market operates, and what some of the concerns are that they have. Um, it's, I guess, its headline output is actually that they specifically, and the, the terms of reference, terms of reference included a consideration as to whether or not they would make a competition of markets authority, a CMA. Um, uh, um, uh, reference in this, so referring them, referring these markets to the CMA, and they've said in the interim paper they are not, not because they think the market's working fine. In fact, they say it's not, 
but because they think there will be other they they will have FCA will have powers that allow them to to um you know clean up these markets somewhat uh you know I mean, there's some analysis that basically says you know the CMA's powers are like breaking up companies and yeah. blowing up monopolies and, stuff, you know, and, and actually they think the FCA are probably going to have some some better uh better solutions uh, which yeah, we don't know what those probably, are going to be probably. Yeah, going to be compelling the existing players to do things rather than breaking them up or yeah. bringing in new players or something. I think I think that 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 seems to be the direction in travel. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, arguably for a lot of regulated firms, this is an example of the FCA doing something that could benefit them because if it, if it reduces costs to, as I say, investment managers, banks, brokers, um, then then this will actually be a, a positive, which has not always been the case with other market studies. Um, it's interesting the. Um, uh, they, so they talk. They talk about some of the uh, the the um, uh, uh, the the um, commentaries they receive from because it's, it's, it's a market study. They 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 sought input from trade bodies and, and individual firms. So they they talked to some some of some of that input, and uh, they talk about you know as a as a, as a as a few a few people have commented on the benchmark administrators. A few people have commented on the credit reference agencies. Hundreds of pieces of feedback on the on the market data <laughs> providers. Um, yeah, they're charging us too much, basically. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, it was, uh, I thought that was that put a smile on my face. Um, so yeah, uh, um, watch this space. That was an interim report. More to follow. Market studies, as people will know, usually lead to um, remedies. So consultations on rule changes, etc. So it's clear. It's clear from what's already been produced that they think there are uh, intrinsic issues with the market that in those three areas: benchmark, benchmark administrators, CRAs, and uh, market data providers which which are problematic are leading to inefficiencies and a lack of competition so so yes yeah, stuff's going to happen i guess over time um the, the final topics we, we're going to cover as usual is is what, what we call the rogues gallery which is the uh, any juicy enforcement or other cases um it's the summer so we haven't had too many in fact in fact we've kind of had to get inventive a little bit on this um so because the, I mean, the, the only only FCA enforcement case that I think has been published over the last couple of months, it was the banning of two IFAs who had um, produced, I think, about 1,500 you know, poor pension transfer advice recommendations, made a lot of money on it. Um, and they, they uh, yeah, I think they said like 90% of the advice was unsuitable, more than 90% of the advice was unsuitable, the FCA have said. Um, they fined those two individuals over 600,000 each. Um, interestingly, they they made those individuals made income wise from the, that work uh, back at just over four hundred thousand each. So, you know, it's they're they're, they're having to give back and then some of the yeah. um, make, the make their point of making sure it doesn't pay. Yeah, I mean, so on on the face of reading the enforcement notice, it looks as you know slam dunk case. Um, however, and we've remarked upon this before, as as is always the case, the uh, the two well, in this case the two individuals have referred the decisions to the upper tribunal. So, I think really, my word. That's a shock. I know, I know. Well, you know, it, it, well, yeah. you know, when, when is your livelihood? Because it's, it's a fine and a ban, a lifetime ban. So, yeah. Um, you know, they've got nothing to lose by appealing it, basically. So, um, so we'll see what the upper tribunal does with it. But we obviously had a, one or two cases that we talked to over the last year where the upper tribunal has come down with a different decision to to to, to the to the, uh, to the FCA enforcement division. So, so yes. So that was the only FCA enforcement case we. The FCA were were active on a in in the civil courts. So um, uh, you you mentioned uh, uh, loan fraud, free, loan fraud, loan fee frauds 
earlier. Um, they went after a what they describe as a Ponzi scheme. Um, uh, so basically, investors in a care home. So this is unregulated. Uh, it, basically, they went there to take it to court because they're not regulated entities, uh, and they needed to uh, argue in court that uh, it was uh, it was actually a, a collective investment scheme that should have been authorised. Um, and and they won basically, and then there was an award of about fifty seven million, I think, which. Uh, if it ever gets paid, is it would intended to be distributed to the um to the to the investors that lost out. So uh, they uh, that's that's the FCA going after um, unauthorized firms. And and the final the final one I on my list here, which again is is not the FCA using its enforcement powers, um, but it's similar. So Morgan Stanley's Energy Trading Division, the couple of energy traders were oh and actually no, no, no details of this. it was actually Morgan Stanley that was fine. They were fined just over five million pounds for uh, because their energy traders had been using WhatsApp to communicate uh, outside of the work perimeter and uh, and under the off-gym rules very much like the FCA rules uh, firms have to record all communications which which can result in or influence a, a market trade um, so Morgan Stanley were found not to have taken reasonable steps to ensure compliance those rules uh this has been in 2018 and 2020 um uh which yeah in a could very easily have been the fca doing the same thing because essentially the rules are the same so don't be using whatsapp unless you've got some really good memes in which case you could sell them to send them to me yeah, um, or you or you want to say some things about your clients that you don't want to put in your minutes oh no no, no, is that not? No, sorry, don't do that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. On that, uh, on that, on that note of, uh, of uh, completely reckless advice, um, we uh, we'd like to thank you for listening to us today. We will be back in a month's time to recap events. Um, I hope you all have a good time in the meantime, um, and uh, thank you for joining Grant Thornton's podcast today. Goodbye.